This morning, we've arrived at a section in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he clarifies one of the most important doctrines in the Christian faith, and that is the resurrection. In Paul's day, the city of Corinth was a Greek city and was the center, center of the Epicurean philosophy. So this, this Epicurean philosophy um, denied an actual bodily resurrection. Well, it appears that this attitude had somehow filtered into the church. And there were some who were teaching that there was no resurrection of the dead. Now, it wasn't that they were, that they were denying that there was some kind of life after death, or that even Jesus had risen. Rather, many were disputing the Jewish and Christian doctrine, or, or when I say doctrine, I mean, I mean teaching, that the actual bodies of believers, that our physical bodies would be resurrected. So Paul tackles this issue head on as he writes about the reality of the resurrection because doctrinally and personally, this teaching, the resurrection, has implications that are too important to ignore. So for the next couple weeks, we'll be looking at what Paul had to say regarding this major topic. Now this week, we'll be looking at the arguments for, this, for uh, the certainty of a bodily resurrection. What we're going to see here this, this morning is that because of the gospel, we have an absolute eternal guarantee of a bodily resurrection. Now, also specifically, we're going to be looking at Christ's bodily resurrection and the consequences of disbelief and belief in this fact. While next week, we'll be seeing him discuss the nature of the resurrected bodies. So I hope that you'll be able to join us next week as we continue into this discussion, into this chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So with that, um, let's open up with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you again on this amazing Sunday. Um, wow, you've given us so many Sundays, uh, and it's a blessing, Lord, to be able to sit here and hear your word to learn what you have to tell us through your word. And so now I pray that everyone here will just be able to focus, Lord, to let go of whatever issues and problems they're dealing with at home personally and at work and at school, and that you will be all they want to hear. You will be all they want to hear from, Lord that your word will stand out, that it will speak to them straight to the heart. Convict where they need to be convicted, Lord, and may they repent where they need repentance, Lord. Use me too as an instrument to speak loudly, Lord, and to, to speak your truth. Bless this next time pray this in Jesus name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1. Now I want to make it clear for you brothers and sisters the gospel I preached to you which you received 
on which you have taken your stand and by, by which you are being saved if you, hold on, if you hold on to the message I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen, have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Well, as I mentioned, in this first section we just read, Paul states the factual evidence of Jesus' res bodily resurrection. So let's examine it more closely. In the first two verses, he reminds the Corinthians what they should have remembered. After Paul had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, they received it, trusted in Christ, had been saved, and were now standing on that message as the assurance of their salvation. He then adds the words, if you hold on to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now he thought it was great that they received the gospel and he thought they were doing well standing on that message, but he wanted them to continue to do well by holding on to it. What this implies is there were some people or some things waiting to just snatch the true gospel away from the Corinthian Christians. He tells them if they didn't continue to hold on and allowed this to happen, everything that they had once believed won't do them any good and would be as if they had believed in vain. Paul here was challenging the Corinthians to hold fast to the gospel which they had received as proof that their faith was genuine and not empty. As believers, we too must be careful not to allow anyone or anything to snatch away or even dilute the true gospel we received, trusted, stand on, and are saved by. You see, the devil will use anything at his disposal to get you to loosen the message of Jesus Christ that you held a tight grip on since he saved you. He will use religion to say that you've got to do this and you've got to do that to be saved. And yes, he will even use politics to say that a Christian has got to be a Republican or a Democrat or um, a capitalist or a socialist or um, he will use politics to just really mess with the believer to, again, dilute the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will use education, books, philosophies, 
YouTube videos to complicate and confuse you so you will question the truth. He will even use evil spirits to perform supernatural or paranormal activities to mess with you. You see, his, the Satan's ultimate goal is to snatch the true gospel away from you and to replace it with something that is empty and that will eventually stumble. In John chapter 8, Jesus said this, He, speaking of the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him whether he tells a lie when he tells a lie he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies that's why it's so important that you hold on to the message that saved you and not allow anything or anyone to add or subtract anything from it see the genuineness of your faith will be seen by and known by how well you hold on to the true gospel, the true and simple gospel of Jesus Christ. In verses 3 to 8, he goes on to repeat the foundational tradition that he had first taught them. Taught them. He starts off by telling them that the message he preached wasn't something that he just made up in his own mind, but was a message he had received onto them. Now this gospel message he received, which Paul received, came from two places. Directly Jesus Christ, and from the evidence found in the Old Testament scriptures. Yet, again, all this wouldn't have happened all, none of that would have happened had Jesus not gloriously revealed himself to Paul on that road to Damascus. Now, in my opinion, there are a lot of good preachers out there. But in my experience, the best ones are the ones who've had a Damascus Road kind of encounter. The reason I believe this is because the gospel message they preach originates from a real personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Those of us that have been through such an encounter preach the gospel because it's real to us. We know that there's no other message out there that can stand against it. And so we want others to have also that personal encounter as well. Therefore, we deliver it so unbelievers may receive it and may be saved by it. Charles Spurgeon said this, Notice that the preacher does not make the gospel. If he makes it, it's not worth your having. Originality in preaching, if it be originality in statement of doctrine, is falsehood. We are not makers and inventors. We are repeaters. We tell the message 
we've received. Now, as Paul describes the gospel, it's important to notice that this gospel is not insightful teaching or good advice. At the core of the gospel are actual, real, and historical events and is not a matter of religious opinions, excuse me, platitudes, or fairy tales. The good news of Jesus, he says, is simply this. According to the Old Testament scriptures, Christ died, he was buried, he appeared. These are the basic facts on which the gospel stands. Now when he says in the beginning of verse 3, Christ died for our sins, this is the theological explanation of those historical facts. You see, many people at that time were crucified by the Romans, but only one victim ever died for the sins of the world. Now some of you may ask, did the Old Testament scriptures actually predict that Christ would die for the sins of the people? The answer is an emphatic yes. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 is sufficient proof of this. Not only that, but in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, it spoke of, about Jesus. And in Psalm 16, 9 through 10, tells us about his resurrection. Here's something that I want you all to understand. The testimony of the scriptures should always be the test in all matters relating to our faith. So when it comes to any teaching, any new teaching, any prophetic message, we should always ask, you should always ask, what do the scriptures say? Paul then proceeds to supply a list of key witnesses to certify the truth of Jesus' bodily resurrection. He mentions Cephas, and Cephas is, is Peter. He mentions the 12 apostles. He then mentions 500, over 500 brothers and sisters. He then mentions James, his brother. He then mentions um, all the other apostles. Now this may refer to all the other um, followers that he didn't mention. There was also certain meetings throughout the book of Acts um, that he went to where other followers of Jesus Christ met at. But you can see there just was a large group of people here that witnessed the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The late Chuck Colson said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. 
They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they could not keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And that's just, he's only speaking about 12. We, imagine 500, over 500 other people verified, saw Jesus. And never once did any of them, do we have record of anyone saying, yeah, you know what, we all made that up. It was just fake news. No, it was true. And they were willing to stake their lives on it. Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 8, Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. The story of how this occurred is told in Acts chapter 9. But he describes it in this way due to his late arrival in the chain of eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection. Christ had already ascended and gone to heaven and was sitting at the right hand of God. And for a special reason only known to, to him and God, God allowed him to, God the Father allowed him to come and appear to Paul separately and gloriously. Paul, from there, highlights his unique role as an untimely witness to the risen Lord in verses 9 through 11. He acknowledges his inferiority as an apostle because of what he had previously done to the first Christians. But he turns his admission of weakness into an opportunity to magnify God's grace. It is by the grace of God that he is the person he's become. And as a result, now he has a deep obligation to work harder than any of them. Now the work he's speaking of here is the work of the ministry, the work of serving the people, the work of, of just sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet, he admits in a, very, in a very real sense that it's not himself doing the work, but the grace of God which was in him. So whether it was he or one of the other apostles who brought the message, they were all united in their testimony of, their go of the gospel, particularly the resurrection of Christ. And it was this message that initially led the Corinthians to receive it, stand by it, and be saved by it. So now in the following verses we're about to read, Paul will carefully prove and present a logical conclusion to the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 12 in our passage. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to, if, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God 
that he raised up Christ, whom he did, whom, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Here, what we just read, he begins by listing the consequences for denying a bodily resurrection. First of all, it would mean that Christ himself has not risen. If there is no bodily resurrection, then that means Christ is not risen. Apparently, the Christians at Corinth weren't denying that Jesus was raised, but were instead denying a Christian bodily resurrection. There's a difference there. Well, all right, Paul says, if that's the case, then not even Christ has been raised. You see, in order to prove the possibility of any fact, all you have to do is demonstrate that it has already taken place at least once. All you got to do is prove that it's taken place at least once. So to prove the fact of a bodily resurrection, Paul is willing to base his case upon the simple fact that Christ has already been raised from the dead. Moreover, if Christ were not raised, then the apostolic preaching of the resurrection is in vain because nothing would result from it. And if so, then the Corinthians would ultimately gain nothing such as salvation from believing in Jesus Christ. Secondly, if Christ were not raised, then Paul and the other apostles would be false witnesses and thus testifying wrongly about God. He then explains in verse 18 that if the resurrection is an utter, I'm sorry, he then explains in verse 18 that if the resurrection is an utter impossibility, then there can be no exceptions to it. On the other hand, if the resurrection had taken place once, for instance, in the case of Christ, then it can no longer be thought of as an impo an, an imp excuse me, never thought of as, no longer be thought of as an impossibility. And thirdly, if Christ has not been raised, all humanity stands condemned because of their sins. And believers who have already died are ultimately lost. Pastor David Guzik made this observation. We can follow Paul's logic point by point here in this passage. If there's no principle of resurrection, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death has power over him 
and defeated him. If death has power over Jesus, he is not God. If Jesus is not God, he cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins. If Jesus cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins, our sins are not completely paid for before God. And if my sins are not completely paid for before God, then I am still in my sins. Therefore, if Jesus is not risen, he is unable to save. Understand this. An integral part of the gospel message was the fact of Christ's resurrection. Because, after all, a dead, a, a dead Savior cannot save anybody. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, Christians should be pitied more than anyone, since they have given up their worldly comforts and have endured persecution for the sake of an empty promise. So the main point of verses 12 through 19 is that, is that if there is no coming bodily resurrection of all Christians, then Jesus himself was not bodily raised and therefore makes Christianity futile. Now let me give you an example of what a former atheist concluded after trying to historically and scientifically prove that the resurrection never happened. Some of you might be familiar with this story. Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ, was asked in an interview if he recalled the moment in time in which he knew in his gut that he had had a decision to make regarding the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what he said. Yes, November 8th, 1981. I had gone to church with Leslie that day. Leslie's his wife. I can't remember anything that was said, but I came home and I just felt like after a year and nine months of looking at the evidence from science and history, and especially, and especially the resurrection, that I needed to reach a verdict. As I wrote, page after page of evidence on my yellow legal pad, I just put down the pen and said, wait a second, it's going to take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because, because the evidence, I believed, was that strong. So that's when I concluded the resurrection was true. I read John chapter 1, verse 12, which says that as many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe on his name. I didn't just believe it, but I repented for my sin and received his free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And I became a child of God, and my life began to change. Ask anyone out there who's done an objective examination of the validity of Jesus' resurrection. And it would be hard to find anyone who wasn't personally impacted, wasn't personally transformed by what they concluded, by what they discovered.
There's no way it can, a person can stay the same unless they were stubbornly just saying, no, I'm not going to believe, I'm not going to believe. Jesus said this in John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. So now that he stated the consequences for not believing in a bodily resurrection, in the following passage, we'll share, he's going to share the opposite consequences. So let's uh, pick up there again in verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through man. For just as Adam die, Adam, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward at, his, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his, under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. In these verses, again, Paul gloriously reaffirms the fact of the resurrection of Christ and some of the blessed consequences that follow. First of all, Christ's resurrect, uh, bodily resurrection guarantees the future bodily resurrection of all believers. Now, if you do study uh, a study in the Old Testament regarding the festival of the first fruits. The first fruits of the harvest were set aside for God in anticipation of the rest of the crop arriving. So likewise, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit assuring us that we shall also be raised one day as part of a future harvest. So for us who believe, death is only sleep. And while the body, this body of ours sleeps, our soul is at home with the Lord. At the resurrection, the body will be awakened and glorified. Isn't that amazing? That regardless of, of where, how, the manner you were buried or even if you were cremated, even if you were in the middle of the ocean, you died and they put your body in the middle of the ocean. These bodies will be raised, not, not the same, but transformed into new bodies, perfect bodies. No more pain, no more sickness, no more, um, I don't think there'll be any more skin tags. 
wrinkles. No more wrinkles, exactly. Warts. Warts. I mean, you, you come up with a bunch of things. No more backaches. Man, we'll be raised gloriously. I'm looking forward to that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11. There it tells us, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection precedes, precedes and makes certain the resurrection of those who belong to Christ at his coming. He points out the parallel between Adam's sin leading to sinfulness, uh, leading to the sinfulness of all humanity, and Christ's resurrection leading to the resurrection of all his followers. Now, because Adam and Christ are presented as federal heads, all who are related to them are affected by their actions. So just as all, the, all who are descended for, from Adam will die because of our sinful disobedience, all who are in Christ will be made alive because of his righteous obedience. Now it's also important to add that when Paul says all will be made alive, he's not implying universal salvation, meaning that everyone at the end will be saved. What he's referring to here is that the resurrection is, is the resurrection to, to eternal life is only for all of those who have joined Christ through faith. In verse 23, Paul informs us of the groups or classes involved in the first resurrection. First is the resurrection of Christ himself. He is spoken of here as the first fruits. The second class in the resurrection is described as, as those who belong to Christ at his coming. This includes those who will be raised at the time of the rapture and those believers who will die during the tribulation and will be raised at the end of that time of trouble when Christ comes back to reign. Paul then goes on to explain what will occur at the end of the resurrection in verses 24 to 28. The expression, then comes the end, refers to the, to the close of the millennial reign. At that time, Jesus will have put down all his enemies and there will be a resurrection of the wicked dead. This is the last resurrection. Do you get that? There'll be a first resurrection where believers will be raised from the dead. Or it, either it's a rapture or uh, believers bodily, will bodily re resurrect. Well, in this last resurrection, all whoever died in unbelief will stand before the judgment of the great white throne to hear their doom. After the millennial, the millennium, and the destruction of Satan, 
the Lord Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. By this time, Jesus Christ will have destroyed all human and demonic opposition to his reign in the universe. When he puts all his enemies under his feet, he reigns as son of God in heaven and that will continue forever. Finally, death itself will be destroyed so that God's people will never again have anything to fear for all eternity. Paul then reminds his readers in verse 27 and 28 that although God decreed that all things shall be put under the feet of Jesus, this doesn't include God himself. Simply put, God the Father will always be God the Father, and God the Son will always be God the Son. And for all eternity, they will continue to relate to each other as Father and Son. When all these events have taken place, then God will finally be all in all. There won't be any ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now as I was doing my research, I found this interesting statistic. According to the 2017 Survey of American Fears, conducted by Chapman University, 20.3% of Americans are afraid or very afraid of dying. Interestingly, interestingly almost as many Americans, 20%, fear public speaking. This thought has prompted comedian Jerry, fin Jerry Seinfeld to quip, this means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you'd be better off in the casket than doing the, the eulogy. If you're a Christian, someone trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, scripture promises that at the moment you leave, you go to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The righteous man who dies is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. You can find that in Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. And in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They may rest from their labors. Indeed, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me just tell you, the fact that Jesus died and rose again means that all of those who believe in him no longer have to be anxious, no longer have to fear what happens after they die. There is certainty. There is a guarantee of eternity. There is a guarantee that we will one day rise from the dead. First of all, if we die before the rapture, our souls will be immediately with the Lord. The Lord comes and we get raptured, we'll be immediately before the Lord. Our bodies will be new and we'll be before the Lord. Or if we die, 
before that. It won't be long before, again, these bodies are raised. We'll be quick. And we'll talk more about that next week, but there really shouldn't be any fear. I mean, I guess some people will will fear how they're going to die. I wouldn't want to be thrown out of airplane. Yeah, that would be kind of scary. But, and some of you may have a certain kind of fear, but um, aside from that, you know, you don't have to fear about what happens afterwards. Well, now in this last section we'll be covering today, Paul goes back to arguing the absurdity of denying the bodily resurrection. So let's finish our passage this morning by picking up in verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day. As surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord, I, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are, are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. In these verses, Paul wants us to consider that the Christian life is made purposeful because of the resurrection of the dead. He begins by asking a question that is perhaps one of the most difficult and obscure verses in the Bible. What will they do who are being baptized for the dead? in the plain, the plain meaning of the original language is that some people are being baptized on behalf of those being, on behalf of those who have died. Now it appears that Paul neither condemns nor condones such a practice, but argues for its irrelevance if Christ isn't raised. In other words, those who are baptized those who are baptizing on behalf of the dead contradict their own theology that denies the resurrection. Paul's point is this. If there is no resurrection, which, you, which is what you're saying, then why are you doing this? What is the point of being baptized for the dead if there is no life after death? He's He's kind of putting it back on them. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's what you think, then that's what you believe in. What's the point? Why are, you, why are you doing what you're doing? And they have no answer, obviously. In verses 30 to 32, Paul turns to a parallel of arguments from his own experience. The book of Acts tells us about how he was in constant jeopardy from his enemies on more than one occasion, and on more than one occasion he had been been close to death. So he essentially asks in verse 30, 
Why should he continue to tolerate hostility from others and risk his life for the sake of the gospel if there is no hope of a resurrection? What he's arguing is that it would have been foolish to engage in such dangerous warfare as he had if he were not assured of, uh, of, of the resurrection of the dead. Indeed, it would have been much wiser for him to adopt the philosophy, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And this again was part of that Epicurean philosophy. This, this body of ours, it's just, it's a mess. So, might as well just indulge in it. Paul, here, then closes this section by telling them to reject these lies of the Epicurean philosophers regarding the, the bodily resurrection of Christian believers. Bad company corrupts good morals is a quote from the poet Menander. This was probably a familiar quote to them. And Paul uses it to warn believers that hanging out with these false teachers, hanging out with these people that are just messing with them, messing with their minds, messing with the gospel that they've been holding on to, wasn't good for them. It's no good. And I urge you again to be careful what you're watching and what you're listening to. It can be very easy, excuse me, it can be very easy to be distracted by videos on YouTube, by videos from, from others, from uh, wherever it may be, to distract you of the simplicity of the gospel. Bad company corrupts good morals. They don't have to be right next to you. They could be on a TV screen, on a computer screen. They could be on, an, on the radio. Be careful. Again, he wanted Christians there and he wanted us to understand that it's impossible to associate with evil people or evil teachings without being corrupted by them. You see, following evil people and accepting false doctrines will inevitably have an effect on your life. Why? Because over time, it will lead you further and further away from holiness. Proverbs 25, 26 says, A righteous person who yields to the wicked is like a muddy spring or a polluted well. Well, Paul ends this particular section with an appeal to the Corinthians. Come to your senses and stop sinning. He hoped that by being blunt with them, they'd reject the evil teachings from men who were ignorant about God. Yet, he also shames them for having already allowed these ignorant teachers to influence them with their wicked doctrines. However, this is important to know that he shames them not to condemn them, but to convict them so that they re repent and return back 
to the gospel message he had taught them. Now as I close, here's what I hope you'll take away from this morning's message. Here's a brief summary. Number one, don't allow anyone or anything to snatch away or dilute the true gospel you received, trusted, are standing on, and have been saved by. Number two, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are the historical facts on which the gospel stands. Him saying Christ died for our sins is the theological explanation of those historical facts. Number four, an integral part of the gospel message is the fact of Christ's resurrection. Otherwise, if it never happened, then you, me, every Christian would gain nothing at all from believing in Jesus Christ. There would be no point. It would be empty. Number five, Jesus' resurrection guarantees a future bodily resurrection of all believers, all those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And number six, and lastly, the certainty of a bodily resurrection gives us hope, purpose, and meaning for this life and for an eternal one that is yet to come. An absolute eternal guarantee for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Now there may be some watching, listening, who have never heard this message, who have never, who maybe have fears, anxieties about death, and aren't sure about what may come after they die, and they would just rather ignore it. And if that's you and you're listening, you're watching, I'm telling you, just don't turn away from it. Right now, God is giving you an opportunity to be saved. He's giving you an opportunity so that you won't have to fear, so that you won't have to have those anxieties anymore, so you can have that guarantee, that assurance that after you die, you will be with the Lord, and that, again, in time, your body will be raised as well. A new, future, glorious body. If you do, and if, you know, if, if, if that makes sense, and that's what you want, then you must receive, accept, and believe in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's where it all begins me delivering it to you and you receiving it. The message of Jesus is simple. He came, lived for three and a half years, showed people who God is because he himself is the exact representation of God. He lived after three and a half years, 
He was arrested. He was put in chains. He was whipped. He was spat on. His beard was pulled. He suffered. He had to carry a cross up a long road, up a hill to Calvary. And on that hill, nails were put through his hands, through his feet, and he was hung on the cross where in time the sins of the world all future past, all past, present and future sins were placed upon him. He then was, those people were mocking him, yelling things at him, and yet he continued to, to, to suffer for us. And then finally he breathed his last. And he said it is, before that, he said it is finished. Means no longer does anybody have to do anything. It's all done. He completed it. Well, three days later, again, the scriptures tell us that he rose from the dead, proving once again his claims to be God. He was God, or he is God. The Bible says that if you believe in him, if you confess and trust in him, you will be saved. So if that's you and you're ready to do that, you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and you're ready to open up your heart to him, then wherever you're at, bow your head, close your eyes, and with all sincerity, pray this prayer in your heart. Heavenly Father, I believe, I know that I'm a sinner. So now I come at the foot of the cross of Jesus and ask for forgiveness. I repent of my sins and believe that Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead. Thank you for allowing him to come and die for me. Thank you for giving me eternal life because of him, because of what he endured. I accept your forgiveness, Lord. So now fill me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I may know you more, so that I may hear from you, and so that I may draw nearer to you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.